Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 616 for the 28th of October, 2018. This week, the 2019 version of Photoshop extends content-aware Phil's capabilities and makes several user interface modifications that may seem small, but were met with enthusiastic applause at the Max conference in Los Angeles. In short circuits, is your computer's hard disk full? If so, you might find hundreds of gigabytes of useless files so we'll examine how to find them and then get rid of them. One of the least welcome sounds around any computer is that of squeaking bearings from a device that holds a bunch of disk drives. Last week, I said I'd solved a problem with the computer's displays. Seems I was a little premature and overly optimistic. Maybe you'll enjoy my frustration. In spare parts, only on the website, Outvote has released a nonpartisan version of its app that's aimed at getting voters registered and out to vote. We're right at the end of Cybersecurity Awareness Month, but keeping security in mind should be a task for everyone all year. Lots of changes are coming for connectivity, and research suggests that within just a few years, we'll have more than 40 billion connected devices on the internet. Last week, we took a quick peek at the annual Adobe Max conference that was held in Los Angeles this year. I promised a closer look at some of the new or improved applications, and the first of those will be Photoshop 2019 CC on the desktop. Artificial intelligence, which Adobe calls Sensei, has enabled some features such as content-aware fill and content-aware move. This year, content-aware fill has received what can only be called a massive update, but that's not all. We'll take a look at content-aware fill first, and be sure to check out the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com, for the images that go along with this discussion. And there's also a video there that shows some of the other changes in action. Let's say that I spotted an attractive scene while driving, stopped to take a photo, and negligently parked so that my vehicle was in the photograph. The photo you'll see was actually provided by Adobe. In the first example, it has been marked for content-aware fill, and the second image shows the result of content-aware fill. The result, while good, creates what looks rather like a pathway where no pathway existed. Ideally, the filled area in content-aware fill would look more like the rest of the shoulder of the road. Until now, that would have required using the clone stamp tool. That wouldn't be a difficult task, but it would take time to accomplish. And one of Adobe's stated goals is to allow Sensei to take over routine, repetitive, boring tasks. Content-aware fill now allows the user to specify the areas that the process will examine. The source area is shown with a green mask. That's the area that Sensei will concentrate on. In this image that you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website, it's the side of the road, the water, the vegetation, not the roadway. 
As a result, the image that used content-aware fill is much better. The area that's filled looks a lot more like the surrounding area. And that's the kind of work that's ideal for artificial intelligence, as Sensei examines only the area that the user specifies as what should be cloned to fill the area where the car is located. Some of the other changes can be illustrated better, I think, with a video, and you'll find that on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. Now, at first, this might seem silly, but believe me when I say that thousands of Photoshop users cheered and applauded when it was announced at the Max conference that the resize function would maintain an object's proportions. Until now, resizing a layer or text in Photoshop often introduced distortion because proportion wasn't locked by default. Grabbing a corner to scale something would stretch the image vertically or horizontally. On rare occasions, a designer might want to do that, but in most cases, that's not the intended result. To maintain the item's proportion, the user had to hold the shift key while resizing, and accidentally releasing the key a bit too early resulted in a distorted image and no small amount of muttering by the designer. The designer then had to press Ctrl-Z and repeat the process. Now the default is to retain proportion, and for those rare instances when there is a need to create distortion, pressing the Shift key allows it. Another long-time frustration has been the undo function. Ctrl-Z in most modern applications allows multiple undos, but much of Photoshop's core functionality isn't exactly modern. A history function was added several years ago so that users could look back through each step taken during the current session and revert to any step along the way. But still, there's a better way. Here's an example. Let's say you've created some text. Next, you want to change it to a different typeface, then you change the color, then you rotate it, possibly several times just to get the angle right. Then maybe you add a bevel effect. And at that point, you stop to look at what you've done, and you decide that everything after changing the typeface was a bad idea. In other words, you don't want the bevel effect, you don't want any of the various rotations, and you believe the color you selected is wrong. But you do want the typeface. Previously, Ctrl-Z would simply toggle between the last step, adding the bevel effect, and the previous state. To go back further, you'd need to find the history panel and delete the unwanted steps. Now, Ctrl-Z steps back through each step, and if you accidentally go too far and want to restore an action you've undone, just press Shift-Ctrl-Z. But perhaps the most promising and welcome addition to Photoshop is a frame tool. Those familiar with the publishing application in design will already understand how this works. After creating a frame to hold a graphic, the user places the graphic in the frame. This allows the image to be cropped, resized, and placed. Until now, placing a second image in a Photoshop file involved placing the second image, either embedded or by reference, and then by using various masking tools to crop it. Placing an image inside a frame ensures that the image is no larger than the frame, so resizing is minimized, and the frame automatically crops away those parts of the image that are outside. So these are things that might seem like they're small, but if you use Photoshop, you'll recognize immediately they're pretty darn big.
In short circuits, Windows computers can accumulate a lot of electronic trash over time. Non-essential files can be less apparent if you have a desktop computer with a gargantuan hard drive or several drives, but the clutter can cause problems for those who have notebook computers. When a computer crashes, it creates a log file and probably a memory dump. When Windows updates arrive, the operating system retains the old version in case you want to roll back to that previous version. Web browsers cache a lot of files. Nearly every application creates temporary files, and far too many of those applications don't clean up after themselves. You may have used Microsoft's Disk Cleanup utility, but Windows 10 has a better option. Open Settings and navigate to the Storage panel. The disk drive with the greatest impact on performance is the boot drive, typically C. This could be a 4-terabyte mechanical drive, a smaller mechanical drive, or a solid-state drive. Solid-state drives, SSDs, are a lot faster than mechanical drives, but they also cost more, and for that reason they're usually smaller. 500 gigabytes is a common size, and these days that's not a lot. Further down on the storage panel, you'll see Storage Sense, that's a way to automate the process of keeping the disk clean, and an option called Free Up Space Now. Let's look at that first, because Storage Sense is turned off by default, and not everybody wants Windows to delete files automatically. Selecting Free Up Space Now opens another dialog that shows various categories of files that can be removed. In the case illustrated on the TechBiter Worldwide website, less than 7 gigabytes will be freed up. That isn't significant on a 500 gigabyte drive. The user can decide which categories of files to delete and which to retain, then click the Remove Files button. The largest component being removed in the example is nearly 6 gigabytes of Windows Update files. If you do want to turn on Storage Sense, Click the Change How We Free Up Space Automatically link before turning it on. You can set a schedule, daily, weekly, or monthly, or let Windows decide. Then choose whether or not to delete temporary files and on what interval, daily, every two weeks, every 30 days, every 60 days, or never. And when Windows deletes downloaded files using the same schedule options. Now, I've left all of that turned off and just set a reminder so that I remember to look occasionally and see what needs to be deleted. While you're on the main storage screen, you can click the line beside any disk drive to see a list that shows various classifications showing how the disk space is being used. Then you can drill down further on any of those classifications. That opens another display showing various locations and clicking one of the locations opens a Windows Explorer instance so you can examine individual files and possibly delete them. One word of caution here, though. Never delete any file or folder unless you know exactly what it is and you are certain that it is not essential to the computer's operation. Some applications offer choices for what to do with files that are probably no longer needed. When you close Microsoft Outlook, for example, it offers to delete all of the files that are in the deleted items folder. Other email programs have settings that control when deleted items are purged from the system.
shortly before noon, a week ago Friday, the normally quiet four-bay disk enclosure that connects disk drives to my primary computer, a notebook computer, began rumbling. Within a few minutes, it had progressed from being slightly noisy to sounding like, oh, about like a 1943 International Harvester steak truck. This is not a welcome sound. Well, I hope that's not a disk, was my first thought. The smart monitor said that all four disks were healthy, but I removed each disk just to see if the noise would stop. It didn't. So that confirmed that the problem was with the Orico disk enclosure itself. That's good news, because recovering from a disk failure is no fun. All essential files are backed up to crash plan online and to external USB drives locally. And most of the critical files are copied to a network-attached storage drive, so I was never concerned about losing any data, but I was concerned about losing time. Eliminating the disk drives as the source of the unwelcome sound meant that the problem was with the enclosure's cooling fan. A YouTube video shows how to replace the fan, but first I would need to buy a replacement fan, and before I could buy it I'd have to find it. At best, that would take at least a couple of days, and I didn't want to lose the entire weekend, so I ordered a new disk enclosure and specified Saturday delivery. Swapping disks between the enclosures would take less than a minute. What's annoying, though, is that this never should have happened. The manufacturer could have chosen to use a fan with ball bearings. Instead, some bean counter probably decided that less expensive sleeve bearings would be acceptable. The profit per unit sold might have increased by 50 cents or a dollar, but the longevity of the device suffered. If you'd like to see a five-minute explanation of the differences between the two kinds of bearings by a really excitable guy, there's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Choosing the least expensive component is a problem with computers. Manufacturers choose components based often on cost, not performance. To some extent, Mac users are protected because Apple does specify top-quality components, but Apple also selects components that are identical to those used in Windows systems and marks them up far more than is reasonable. So nothing is perfect, and maybe all we can hope for is to find a way to be ready for sudden failures. I had a noon conference call and managed to join it less than five minutes late, having shut down the Windows computer and switched to a Mac. For the rest of the day and most of Saturday, I was fully a Mac user. I could have switched to a Microsoft Surface tablet, and would have if the outage had been expected to last for more than a day. A second Windows system was also available, along with a couple of computers that run Linux, and a Chromebook. The key is to have some kind of backup system available when you need it, and maybe to avoid purchasing devices that use roller bearings. The newer version of the Orico enclosure has an internal power supply, so there's no external brick. I like that. The individual bays no longer have locks, so users won't be able to lock the bay and then lose the key. That seems reasonable, particularly given how these devices are used. And locking is kind of a silly concept anyway. And the fan. Oh, yeah, it seems to be a little higher quality than in the first unit. Last Saturday, after I gladly reported problem solved in spare parts, 
I found the DisplayPort monitors on my primary computer once again were not being detected following a power-off reboot. I couldn't go online to download the files to fix the problem because of high winds that had knocked out internet service. From there, it became even stranger. The problem appeared to have been solved by switching to the DisplayPort connections, but indeed that was not the case. A considerable amount of research suggests that this is not an uncommon problem and that few of the proposed solutions work. None of the proposed solutions worked for me. I downloaded the Display Driver Uninstaller to remove all video drivers from the computer, downloaded the latest NVIDIA drivers, booted to safe mode, blew away the existing drivers, rebooted, ran the NVIDIA installer twice with a reboot between sessions, and then used the device manager to have Windows update the drivers. About three hours and a lot of muttering later, the monitors were once again operational. I detected success again, but prematurely. Everything seemed fine after a reboot, but then I tried shutting down the computer and turning off the monitors. Once again, the computer failed to recognize the monitors. Now, if I had any hair left, which I don't, I would have been pulling it out by that time. DisplayPort monitors must be powered up when the computer starts, or they won't be recognized. Mine were powered on, and the port selectors were set to DisplayPort. Nonetheless, Windows reported, didn't detect another display. More hours of Google searches turned up nothing useful, at least nothing that I hadn't already tried. Older geek Randy McElvin suggested that I read through a long discussion by people who have had similar problems. In the meantime, I obtained two new cables that would go from DisplayPort on the dock to HDMI on the monitor to see if that arrangement would work any better than the DisplayPort to DisplayPort cables. After playing with several combinations of cables, I got one monitor working from the DisplayPort socket on the docking station to the DisplayPort socket on the monitor, and the other working from the second DisplayPort socket on the docking station to one of the HDMI sockets on the monitor. That setup still worked following a reboot, but not after a power-off restart. In that case, the DisplayPort monitor was once again not detected. Randy McElvin at Older Geeks had several other suggestions, but unfortunately, the problem persists. I have switched back to the original setup, which is an HDMI to HDMI connector for the primary monitor, and a DVI to HDMI cable for the second monitor. The monitors may blink occasionally, but at least they're always detected at boot time. The cables I'm using may need to be upgraded to handle the extra data being sent to the higher resolution monitors. The new monitors have nearly 78% more pixels than the old monitors, and instead of pushing more than 4 million pixels to the monitors 60 times a second, the computer now needs to push almost 7.5 million pixels 60 times a second. There are times when I wish there was more competition in the display adapter business. Well, there's no competition for spare parts, and you'll find it only on the website. This week, OutVote has released a nonpartisan version of its app that's aimed at getting voters registered and out to vote. We're right at the end of Cybersecurity Awareness Month, but keeping security in mind should be a task for everyone all year. And lots of changes are coming for connectivity, and research suggests that within just a few years, we'll have more than 40 billion connected devices on the internet.
Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.